You're listening to Jar of Hearts by Jennifer Hillier. Read for you by January Lavoie. Five years is a long time to wear uncomfortable panties. Prison underwear is scratchy. So are prison bedsheets. So are prison clothes. Prison isn't designed for comfort. It's designed to keep the criminal away from the outside world, or the outside world away from the criminal. Which aren't the same thing, and the distinction is important. Geo, flat on her back inside the prison library, spreads her legs a little wider. Her panties are in a puddle beside her head, and the cheap industrial carpet feels like sandpaper against her bare ass. She can't remember the last time she had sex on an actual bed. The carpet smells vaguely of mildew, and maybe it's the fibers or maybe it's the mold, but ever since she started having sex here, she's had a chronic rash on the back of her shoulder that won't go away. She thinks about this rash now, while absently staring at the mop of dark hair bobbing between her legs. Her shoulder is so itchy, and her tube of hydrocortisone ointment is in her pants pocket. Her pants are somewhere behind her head. Can she reach it? Corrections officer Chris Bukowski looks up and licks his lips. What's the matter? Not into it? Keep going. I'm getting close. Bukowski's head goes back down, and Geo makes a swipe for her pants but can't quite reach them. She makes a few grunting noises and moves her hips a little, timing it to his rhythm. They only ever do oral because Bukowski, only 25 years old and one of the newer COs at Hazelwood, is terrified of getting her pregnant. There's no access to birth control here, which makes sense, since the inmates aren't allowed to have sex, and especially not with the guards. Bukowski is risking his job and a prison sentence if they're ever caught, but that's not Geo's problem. As far as she's concerned, being friends with a CO has made life a bit easier. She and Bukowski have been friends for about six months now. During that time, Geo's received special privileges, like extra fresh fruit at mealtimes and a personal TV for her cell. He also brings her books, cosmetics, and toothpaste that isn't available in the commissary. It's funny how something as fucking insignificant as Sensodyne can suddenly feel so important. Everything is magnified in prison. On the outside, you bump into someone, you apologize and go on your way. The worst that might happen is they give you a dirty look, tell you to watch where you're going. In here, bumping into the wrong bitch can land you in the infirmary for a couple of days. Bukowski isn't married, but he's had the same girlfriend since high school, and the relationship has gone stale. Lori, or is it Tracy, certainly wouldn't be pleased to know what her boyfriend does at work all day. He isn't the first guard Geo's slept with, but thankfully he'll be the last. Bukowski is in love with her, which again is his problem, but it's getting annoying. At least he's nicer than the others. Helpful, eager, sweet even. Right now, it feels like a puppy is licking Geo's palm. Except it's not her palm. Thirty seconds later, she pretends to orgasm, and then she and Bukowski switch positions. Geo has no preference over giving or receiving. Her mind is elsewhere anyway, and she thinks about a hundred other things as her tongue and lips work efficiently. Fortunately, Bukowski's been handling himself the entire time, so he's most of the way there. They're in their usual spot, in a little used area in the non-fiction section, somewhere between auto mechanics and home repair. The library is closed for another ten minutes while the other guard is on lunch break, and that right there is the only good thing about getting it on with someone you're not attracted to in prison. You have no choice but to make it quick. Three minutes later, Bukowski is smiling and pulling up his polyester blend pants. Hazelwood changed the CO's uniforms from gray to navy blue a few months ago, and the dark color looks good on him. She supposes he's handsome, not that it matters. He hands her a bottle of water, and she takes a long sip. Bukowski watches as she smooths her hair and attempts to make it look like she hasn't just had sex. You're out tomorrow, he says. What's the first thing you're gonna do? Everybody's been asking her this. It's a stupid question. 
Gio's answered it a number of different ways so far, depending on what she thinks the other person expects to hear. A bath, she says. A long, hot bubble bath and a glass of red wine. Can't wait to join you. Only a lovesick prison guard could say something like that to an inmate and think it was somehow romantic. Gio's been at Hazelwood for five fucking years. The absolute last thing she wants to do is hang out with a CO once she's free. She forces a smile and sips more water, swishing it around in her mouth before swallowing. Bukowski's taste is strong and it's lingering. Don't think your girlfriend would appreciate that, Chris. I'm thinking of ending it with her. Gio pauses. Why? You know why. He tucks in his shirt and buckles his belt. You're a free woman tomorrow. We can start seeing each other openly. We can have actual sex. Have you thought about going on the pill? We- You're ten years younger than me, Gio says. And I'm going to be an ex-con. Not exactly a winning combination. So? I know what we have is special. I know what we have is sexual assault, Gio thinks, but doesn't say. By law, inmates can't consent to having sex with a corrections officer. It's legally the same thing as rape. He seems anxious, so she smiles at him. We'll figure it out. Give me a few days to get settled. You know I'm staying with my dad until I get a place of my own. It's the right thing to say, and he relaxes. Keeping Bukowski happy for the 24 hours until her release is important. Gio never intended for things to get so serious between them, on his end anyway. And now she has to be careful she doesn't hurt him. She's seen firsthand what can happen if an inmate crosses a guard. Two years ago, a young inmate tried to end her intimate relationship with a CO five days before her two-year sentence was up. The CO, an older married man with five kids, didn't take the rejection well. The next day, a bag of heroin and a shank were found in the inmate's cell. She got an additional five years on her sentence. It was that simple. Before they exit the library, Bukowski sneaks in a quick kiss. It's all Geo can do not to flinch. Sex is one thing. Kissing is another. They say goodbye, and with any luck, it will be the last time Geo ever has sex in prison. She heads down the hallway and is soon approached by a tall, extremely skinny woman named Yolanda Carter. Geo doesn't break stride, but eventually she has to since the woman is in her way. She stops, already aware that the conversation won't be a good one. They've spoken before. It's never gone particularly well. What do you want, Boney? She asks. The woman's short afro is shaved at the sides, and both of her long, veiny arms are covered in tattoos. Sharply defined collarbones match equally sharp elbows, which jut out from the sleeves of her prison scrubs. It's easy to see where she got her nickname, but there's no dieting involved. Gio's seen her in the chow hall, and the woman eats. She speaks almost as fast as her metabolism digests food, and she gets right in Gio's face. Where's your black bitch? Boney says with only a trace of an accent. Her voice is almost as deep as a man's. Rumor has it she used to be a princess in Nigeria, but Boney probably started that rumor herself. She's not my bitch, and I'm not her keeper. Boney puts a hand on Gio's arm. You tell her, don't touch me, Gio says softly, staring right into the woman's eyes. The woman removes her hand and takes a half step back. You tell your friend that if she sells to another one of my customers, I will come for her. And not just in here. I got friends on the outside. I'll come for her kids. They're her customers, and I'm not telling her shit. Gio turns and walks away. Oh, so you're only the banker, huh? Boney calls, her baritone carrying down the hallway. You think you're not involved in this? You're involved, bitch. You got involved the first day you met her, bitch. Gio continues down the hallway without glancing back. When she turns the corner, she stops for a second to catch her breath and allow her heart rate to slow down. There's no room for weakness in here. It's all good and fine to be a nice person, to be pleasant and cooperative and do whatever you're told with no attitude. But the moment someone gets in your face, 
the moment someone gets in your space. You can't back down or show fear, ever. You'll get eaten alive. And if someone hurts you, you have to retaliate, every time. Because if you don't, they'll keep coming. Right, Bernie? She buzzes into the medium security wing and sees Kat being escorted down the hallway toward their cells, which are next to each other. They both got transferred out of Maximum three years ago. Geo for good behavior, and Kat because she got sick. Geo is dismayed to notice that Kat's prison scrubs look even bigger on her rapidly shrinking frame than they seemed a week ago. It's hard to get her friend to eat, and when she does, it's even harder to get the food to stay down. Kellerman, the corrections officer assigned to drive Kat to and from the hospital, looks put out. Kat needs help walking, but he isn't helping her. His hand is barely touching her elbow, as if he's disgusted to be near her. As if stage four cancer is contagious. How'd it go? Gio asks when she catches up to them. Fine, Kat says pleasantly enough, but she's not smiling. Her face is paler than usual the circles under her eyes the color of eggplant. Her auburn hair, quaffed to perfection on a good day, is limp, and her gray roots are showing. Same shit, different day. What are you doing out of work, Shaw? Built like a power lifter, C.O. Kellerman is actually nicer than he looks, but very strict with zero sense of humor. Meaty arms flank a barrel chest. You're supposed to stay at your work assignment until 3.30. Gio has her explanation ready. Bukowski said I could close the salon early to help with Kat. She's going to vomit in about two minutes. Kellerman hesitates. He's assigned to bring Kat back, but a sick, vomiting inmate is wholly unappealing. I guess that's fine, he says, managing to sound as if he's doing them a favor. He lets go of Kat's arm and it drops to her side. But you take Bonaducci straight back to her cell, you understand? No detours except the bathroom. Oh, pity. I was hoping to go on a walking tour, Kat says. The CO glares at her, but despite her snark, the woman is obviously feeling poorly. The light sheen of sweat across her forehead highlights how pale she is, and her glazed eyes are a tad unfocused. Straight to your cells, Kellerman says again before walking away. Gio puts an arm around her friend, supporting her as they walk slowly down the hallway. Kat has lost so much weight, she feels like a bird whose hollow bones might snap under too much pressure. It's a far cry from the woman Gio met five years ago, so robust and full of life. They reach Kat's cell, and Gio helps her friend sit on the bed, then grabs the bottle of water on the desk. It's already filled in preparation for Kat's return from the hospital. After two rounds of this, they both know the drill. Easy, Gio says, when the water dribbles down Kat's chin. Take your time. Kat finishes the water and leans back on her mattress. Her brow is furrowed, an expression of exhaustion and pain. Fuck, I hate this. I know. Gio strokes what's left of Kat's hair. She still has it, thank God, but it's thin and has lost all of its former luster. She always looks pale after chemo, but today, her skin is the color of tissue paper. Hang in there. That was your last session. Yeah, for this round, Kat says. But how many more rounds? The fucking chemo feels worse than the cancer. If the cancer doesn't kill me, the goddamn chemo will. Gio adjusts Kat's pillow and removes her running shoes. She covers her with the blanket, then moves the bucket on the floor closer to the bed within easy reach. At some point, Kat will need to throw up, and because there's no toilet inside the cell, the bucket will have to do. They have wet cells, cells with their own sink and toilet, only in maximum, and Kat refuses to go back to the maximum security ward. The inmates are worse, and besides, she doesn't have friends there. Every week after chemotherapy, Gio takes care of Kat's bucket of vomit, bringing it to the bathroom to empty out and clean. She helps her use the toilet, helps her shower, helps her brush her teeth. Gio doesn't mind. Caring for Kat reminds her that she's still a good person, that she can still do good things. It's easy to forget that in here.
Look at the bright side, Gio says with a smile. You're done with the chemo for now. Tomorrow you'll get some energy back and you'll feel like yourself again. Lenny's coming on Saturday. He's not coming, Kat says. What do you mean? He wants a divorce. Kat's voice cracks and her eyes moisten. Lenny's leaving me. He met a woman at one of the casinos. Says he's in love. She owns a nail salon. She probably has great nails. Kat holds up a gnarled hand. Her fingernails are brutally short and yellowed from the cancer-killing toxins being pumped into her body each week. Not like mine. Why didn't you tell me? Gio is shocked. When did you find out? He told me last week. And you kept it to yourself the whole time? Gio feels her anger welling up and does her best to contain it. Anger won't help Kat now. But the whole thing is so goddamned unfair. That son of a bitch. Kat and Lenny met through the Write a Prisoner program. They exchanged letters for six months before he finally came to see her in person. A truck driver who's on the road three weeks out of every month. Their relationship worked quite well. Lenny finally got himself a wife who couldn't nag him for always being away. They spoke on the phone throughout the week, and he came to see her every weekend when he was home. And every few months, they were granted a 24-hour conjugal visit. Hazelwood has half a dozen trailers at the back of the prison, equipped with full kitchens, queen-size beds, and TVs, and they would spend that time together eating, watching movies, and having sex. Kat would glow for a whole week when she got back to her cell, recounting every tiny detail to Gio with relish. When she got sick eight months ago, Lenny vowed to stay with her. Kat's in her 60s now, but before the cancer, she looked 15 years younger than that. The look on Lenny's face when Kat said, I do, to him in the prison chapel remains imprinted in Gio's brain. And she can still remember the look on her friend's face that day. The fucking sun had shone out of the woman's eyes. Now her friend's brown eyes are glassy. The cancer has dried up her once luminous skin, hollowing out her cheeks, the sagging skin creating jowls around a neck that used to be smooth and firm. Her once vibrant auburn hair is a brassy rust color, despite Gio's best efforts in the hair salon. She's lost so much weight, the skin on her arms and legs hangs like an extra layer of clothing that's a size too big. Kat has stage four colon cancer, for fuck's sake, and her husband can't wait? She could fucking kill Lenny. Without him, Kat will go downhill even faster. Don't be angry at him, her friend's voice breaks into her thoughts. I know what you're thinking. You're going to get out tomorrow and track him down and yell at him, force him to come see me. But don't, okay? It's exactly what Gio is planning to do. Give me one good reason why not. Because I'm asking you not to, Kat squeezes her hand. It's more than the cancer that's killing me, hun. It's more than Lenny. It's this goddamned place. The grayness of it, the monotony, the fact that every fucking day is the same. It's the daily bickering and drama between women that are too old to live in a sorority house, which is exactly what it feels like here, doesn't it? Minus the cute clothes and the boyfriends. Gio opens her mouth to respond, but Kat isn't done. I can't blame Lenny for not loving me anymore. Everything he loved about me is gone. My looks, my laugh, my sex drive. Last time we had a conjugal visit, I spent half the time sleeping. Best I could manage was a hand job. The older woman attempts a smile, but it's weak. This isn't what he signed up for. We had plans for when I got out. Mount Rushmore, Mount St. Helens, the Grand Canyon. We were going to sleep in motel rooms, fuck like rabbits, collect those souvenir shot glasses from every place we visited. I got sick and changed all that. He's a goddamn cheating bastard, Geo spits. She can't help it. It's not right, it's not fair. Yes and yes, Kat says patiently. But we already know that about life. Tomorrow you'll be a free woman and I want you to go home and never look back. Rebuild your life, find a man, get married, have kids. Put all this shit behind you. And don't ever come back here, ever. Not even to see me, 
not even when I'm dying. Stop it. Hot tears sting Gio's eyes, but she blinks them away before they can fall. You're not going to die in here. They're going to grant you compassionate parole. We're supposed to hear back from the parole board any day now. And when you get out, I'll take you to all those places. I won't make it, Kat says gently, stroking Gio's arm. Accept it. No, accept it, Kat says again, more firmly. Never, Gio thinks, but she nods. It's not her place to argue with a sick woman. Her friend's gaze flickers to the TV sitting on the desk. What's that doing there? That's your brand new TV, Gio says, otherwise known as my old TV, which you can now have. Eight inches of non-high-definition color for your viewing pleasure. I wish it was eight inches of something else for my pleasure. Geo snorts, like you could handle that. You'd be surprised. I'm small, but I'm mighty. The women share a hearty laugh. It's yours now. Geo turns it on and fiddles with it for a moment. Look, the young and the restless is on. She sits on the chair next to the bed. Technically, Kat needs to be approved to have a TV in her cell, but Gio can't imagine anyone will deny her sick friend something that Gio doesn't need anymore anyway. The Young and the Restless is Kat's favorite soap opera. It brings her comfort to watch the two lead characters scream at each other yet again. When will she realize that he's no good for her? Kat says with a dramatic sigh. Never, Gio says, her feet propped up on the desk. She munches on one of Kat's crackers and files her nails with the small emery board she bought in commissary. Their angst will go on forever until one of them dies. It's a soap opera. The irony of fussing with her nails while watching The Young and the Restless isn't lost on her. Five years ago, Gio had regular appointments at the nail salon down the street from her house. It was owned by a small Vietnamese woman named May, who was learning English through American soap operas. The salon had a TV mounted in the corner, and the young and the restless was always playing at full volume. Gio would relax in a puffy, faux leather chair, her feet soaking in a tub full of swirly water as May worked on her manicure. Every so often, the woman would look up and ask, What means scandal? Or, What mean adulterer? And Gio would explain. Those mani-pedi appointments seem like an absurd luxury now along with her Range Rover, her 1,200 thread-count Egyptian cotton sheets, her countless pairs of Stuart Weitzman high heels. Everything has been stored at her dad's place since her house was sold, and while she's looking forward to getting out of Hellwood, she's dreading going back to her childhood home. But there's nowhere else to go. The Young and the Restless ends, and Gio turns to find Kat asleep, her breathing deep and even. Gio watches her for a moment, her heart swelling and breaking at exactly the same time. The papery skin, the blue-veined eyelids, the dry, deflated lips. How can she leave her friend in here to die? Fucking Lenny. It isn't fucking fair. You're being creepy. Kat's eyes are still closed, but there's a hint of a smile on her face. I love you too. Stop staring and let an old woman rest. The news comes on. Gio watches absently as a pretty blonde reporter highlights the day's top stories. And then suddenly, her father's house appears on the TV screen. She sits up straight, pulling the TV a few inches closer. There's no mistaking her childhood home. Same taupe gray siding, same bright blue door, same dark red Japanese maple tree to the left of the garage that's always been there. Gio strains to listen, not wanting to turn the volume up because she doesn't want to wake Kat. Police haven't yet confirmed the identities of the victims, but we can confirm that one is an adult female and the other is a minor, the reporter says, her diction clear and even. To recap, both bodies were discovered in the woods just behind Briar Crescent in the Sweet Bay neighborhood, reminding local residents of a similar discovery more than five years ago. More to come after the break. The news cuts to commercial, and Gio sinks back into the chair. Terror seizes her heart in a vice grip, wrapping it in steel fingers that won't let up. 
Beside her, Cat snores. Calvin's back. Just in time to welcome her home. The first time Geo laid eyes on Calvin James, she was 16. It was a day like any other. She was with Angela and Kaiser, the three of them leaving the 7-Eleven down the street from St. Martin's, refreshments in hand. Grape Slurpee for Angela, blue raspberry Slurpee for Geo, and a big gulp Mountain Dew for Kai, who didn't like Slurpees at all. The red Trans Am was parked two spots over from Angela's cute little Dodge Neon, a gift from Angela's parents the day she turned 16. Her father was a VP at Microsoft, and her mother came from money, so Angela was rich. It was something Geo's friend neither bragged about nor tried to hide. It was what it was. The Trans Am was surrounded by four guys, and they all looked about the same age, early 20s. All of them were smoking cigarettes and drinking beer out of cans hidden in paper lunch bags. It was 2.30 on a Thursday afternoon. That right there should have been the first red flag. The older boys, guys, men, looked over as the trio approached the neon, taking note of their matching white button-down shirts with the St. Martin's High School crest on the breast pockets. Angela and Gio wore identical maroon and gray plaid kilts, knee socks, and black loafers. Kaiser was wearing gray dress slacks and a maroon tie. Gio sensed her friend's postures changing as they got closer. Kaiser, tall but skinny, seemed to shrink a little as the older guys stared him down. Angela, on the other hand, blossomed with the attention, adding a slight swing to her hips that hadn't been there a few seconds ago. St. Martin's girls, one of the guys said, loudly enough for them to hear. His friends laughed. One of them your girlfriend, bro? Kaiser didn't answer. He simply waited by the back door of the neon on the driver's side, his designated spot when they were in Angela's car, looking as if he wished he could disappear. Angela placed her Slurpee on the roof as she unlocked the car, her cool gaze belying her excitement at having been noticed by older guys. The three of them got in. Gio rolled her eyes as she shut the door and buckled her seatbelt. They're too old, she said to Angela, and they're drinking. In the middle of the day, which means they're at least 21. Why aren't they at work? They probably don't have jobs, Kaiser piped up from the back seat, comfortable speaking now that they were safely inside the vehicle. They don't look like they're in college either. Don't be judgmental, Kai, Angela snapped, flipping down her visor so she could check her face. She had checked it five minutes before they'd gone into the 7-Eleven, and she'd checked it five minutes before that, when they'd gotten into the car to drive over here from school. Satisfied that she hadn't suddenly gotten a pimple in the last 300 seconds and that her face was still perfect, which it was, there was no denying that, she flipped the visor back up. Her dark eyes cut past Geo toward the group, still looking over at them. Maybe they work nights. You don't know anything. To Geo, she said, and what, you prefer the boys at school? Look, that one there is cute. Which one, Geo said, sipping her Slurpee. She didn't dare look. The tall one. Good Lord, Angela said, her voice slightly breathless. Seriously, he's beautiful. Jared Leto face, Kurt Cobain vibe. Geo chanced a glance in their direction. The tall one was pretty good looking, she supposed. If you liked the whole bad boy thing, which Angela did. Ripped jeans, black t-shirt, hair a tad long and brushed back off his chiseled face. He saw her watching him and she turned her face away from the window. Ange, come on, let's go. I have to finish my English essay before Melrose Place. Yeah, can we go already? Kaiser said, sounding moody. He's coming over, Angela said. What? He's walking toward the car, Angela hissed. Roll down your window, see what he wants. God, I hope the Trans Am's his. I'm not rolling. The tap on the glass made them both jump. Gio couldn't help but laugh. Stuff like this always happened whenever Angela went anywhere. Her best friend met guys just by walking down the street. In fact, that very thing had happened the day before. A car turned around in the middle of the shopping center parking lot, nearly hitting someone just so the driver could ask for Angela's number. She said no, 
unimpressed by his car, an old Jetta covered in rust spots. Gio cranked the window down. His smell was the first thing she noticed, and it wafted into the car, an intoxicating blend of Budweiser, Calvin Klein Eternity Cologne, and Marlboros. If your parents would hate him were the name of a cologne, this was exactly what it would smell like. Can we help you? She said. Her voice was sharper than she intended, and she knew it sounded prissy. Angela smacked her arm, then leaned across Gio to smile at the guy through the window, her hair tickling Gio's legs. She was doing damage control. God forbid the hot guy didn't like her because of something awkward Gio said. The guy smiled back, first at Angela, then at Gio. He held her gaze, and she felt a flutter in her stomach. Angela was right. He was beautiful. Bro, he said finally, nodding to Kaiser in the back seat without breaking eye contact. Hey, Kaiser replied, but it came out a squeak. You left your Slurpee on the roof. He was speaking to Angela, but he hadn't taken his eyes off Geo. Didn't want you to drive away and have it fall. Oh shit, thanks for telling me. Angela opened her door and got halfway out, reaching for her drink on top of the car. Blue raspberry, right? He said to Gio, nodding at her oversized cup. How'd you know? Your tongue is blue. Oh. She blushed. I guess that's a dead giveaway. Although I'm not sure why you're looking at my tongue. That's kind of pervy. He laughed, and she was pleased with herself. That was a good quip. Oh, my God, Kaiser muttered from the back seat. But if the older guy heard him, he didn't react. His stare was disconcerting, and there was nowhere else to look except directly back. He had green eyes, bright gold in the center, feline eyes. They contrasted intensely with his dark hair. One arm rested comfortably on the ledge of the open window. Haven't I seen you here before? Wow, such an original line, Angela said, slamming the car door shut again. Gio glanced over at her friend, only to find her expression sullen, full lips pressed into a thin line. She was angry because the hot guy wasn't paying attention to her. He wasn't even looking at her, and Angela was masking her feelings of rejection and disappointment by pretending to be totally bored with the conversation. You think up that line all by yourself, or did you steal it from your dad? The guy grinned, then winked at Gio as if to say, I know why she's mad, and you do too. And who gives a shit? So what's your name? He said to Gio, ignoring Angela. Her name is Jailbait, Angela snapped before Gio could respond. Now it was nice talking to you, but we have homework to do. I'm sure you remember what homework is, right? Now he's too old, Gio thought, incredulous. To the guy, she said, I'm Georgina. My friends call me Gio. Then I'll call you Georgina, he said, because I think we should be more than friends. She laughed. Beside her, Angela let out an impatient sigh and started the car. Gio knew exactly why her friend was being rude, and it was because the hot older guy with the cool older friends wasn't interested in her. Well, you know what? Tough shit. How many times had Gio sat back and played wing woman while guys hit on her best friend? There was even a term for it in this situation, grenade. In every girl group, there was the hot one, and there was the grenade. Angela was always the hot one, the one the guys wanted, the one they competed for. Gio was the grenade, the one the guys had to be nice to and treat with kid gloves, because if it blew up, if the grenade didn't like you, then the entire group of girls would leave, and there went your chances with the hot one. For reasons Gio couldn't begin to understand, they had switched roles today, and neither girl was prepared for it. Not that Gio wasn't pretty. She was, and most days she felt it. But Angela Wong was beautiful. Everybody said so. Waist-length black hair, dark almond-shaped eyes, porcelain skin. She was also confident, one of the most popular girls in their junior year. When she spoke to you, she could make you feel like you were the only person in the room. Or she could shred you with one dirty look. Gio had none of these qualities. Yet somehow the hot guy wanted her. 
Predictably, Angela was pissed. The hot guy wasn't playing the game right by not showing her best friend any interest. The grenade was about to blow. Luckily, he figured it out. Listen, the reason I came over is that my friend over there thinks you're gorgeous. He directed his attention to Angela now and pointed to where his friends were standing. One of them raised a hand to wave. That's Jonas. He plays in a band. They got a gig at the G-Spot tomorrow night and we can get you in for free. Bartender's a buddy of mine, so free drinks all night. You guys have ID, right? He meant fake ID, and of course they did, though Gio got nervous anytime she used hers, which wasn't often. Still miffed, Angela craned her neck to get a better look at Jonas, who in Gio's opinion looked to be about 25 years old. But he was cute enough, and the fact that he was in a band would appeal to Angela. Maybe, her friend finally said, but she allowed a small smile. Gio let out a breath. The pin was staying in the grenade. For now. You're in the band, too? Gio asked him. Nah, not me, he said with a lazy grin. Can't carry a tune to save my life. But I support my buddies, you know. Whatever they want, I want for them. That's what a good friend does. It was a jab at Angela, but her friend was too busy checking her face again in the visor mirror to notice. He smiled knowingly, and Gio smiled back. And already it felt like they shared a secret. Already, it felt intimate. I'll give you my number and you can page me, he said. Got a pen? Gio found one in the armrest and handed it to him. He reached into the car and took her hand, taking his time writing on the back of it. The sensation tickled and she wanted to laugh, but there was something about him that made her feel all warm inside and a little bit dizzy. Gio looked down at the number he'd given her and the name right under it. Calvin. Hope to see you guys. He held her hand for a second longer than was necessary. You're welcome to come too, bro, he said to Kaiser as an afterthought. Pretty sure I have homework, Kaiser said, sipping his big gulp. See you soon, Georgina, Calvin said, kissing her hand before letting it go. Angela started the engine and pulled out of the parking lot, driving slowly past the three other friends leaning against the red Trans Am. Jonas is cute, Gio offered, twisting around to look at Kaiser in the back seat. Don't you think, Kai? You don't want to know what I think, he said, sounding glum. He is, right? Angela said, but her voice was doubtful. They drove in silence for a bit. Gio was basking in the glow of Calvin's interest in her and dying to talk about it, but she knew if she opened her mouth too quickly, it could ruin the rest of the afternoon. She had to wait for Angela to bring it up, and for her friend to decide she was okay with what happened. Instead, Gio smiled down at her hands. She'd already memorized Calvin's number in case the ink rubbed off before she had a chance to call. I can't believe you took the guy's digits. Kaiser didn't sound happy. Your dad will kill you. He's like so old. Shut up, Kai, Gio said, cross. She didn't expect him to be happy about it, for different reasons than Angela. But the least the both of them could do was not shit all over it. Things like this didn't happen to her every day, and she wanted to enjoy it a little. I'm not telling my dad. Angela sighed. Fine, whatever. He's hot, you lucky bitch. We'd better figure out what we're going to wear tomorrow night. You're coming with us, right, Kai? Bite me, he said. As it turned out, her outfit hadn't mattered. Gio had spent the following night in the back room of the G-spot, making out with Calvin on an old green sofa that smelled of beer and pizza. It was the first time she'd ever French kissed a guy, the first time she'd ever sucked someone's tongue. They hadn't gone all the way because Gio was still a virgin and nowhere near ready for that, but she'd let his hands go wherever they wanted. Down her shirt and into her bra, up her skirt and inside her panties. He'd given her the first orgasm she'd ever had with another person, and she came hard, looking directly into his eyes. She didn't know it could feel like that. Afterward, he'd laced his fingers through hers and whispered, This is crazy. 
I'm so into you, it hurts. That first night with Calvin was the first and last time the relationship felt beautiful. The first and last time it didn't feel complicated. The first and last time that Gio's heart and mind were pure. If she could somehow isolate that one night and remember it all by itself, it might actually be a happy memory. After all, Calvin James was her first love. But it doesn't work that way. The past is always with you, whether you choose to think about it or not, whether you take responsibility for it or not. You carry the past with you because it transforms you. You can try to bury it and pretend it never happened, but that doesn't work. Gio knows that from experience. Because buried things can and do come back. 1,826 days. That's how long Gio has been inside Hazelwood. And she would have been free hours ago except for one small glitch. The prison is currently on lockdown. Yolanda Carter, the skinny black inmate also known as Boney, was stabbed in the shower this morning. She was found by a guard during count, and had probably been in the shower for at least an hour already, with inmates coming and going as they got ready for the day. But of course, nobody said anything. That's how things work in prison. Nobody wants to be the bitch who snitched. Gio didn't see what happened, but according to the rumors, which moved faster than lightning in prison, Boney's death was a scene from a horror movie. The shower, timed to shut off after eight minutes, hadn't rinsed much away, and the inmate-slash-drug dealer had been found crumpled on the tiled floor dressed in nothing but her shower shoes, covered in her own blood. When Gio heard the news, she wasn't surprised, especially considering her conversation with the woman the day before. Boney had been moving in on Ella Frank's turf for a while now, and not only here in Hellwood, but on the outside, too. That's why Boney had to go. You didn't threaten a woman's family, and you sure as shit never threatened a woman's children. Maybe if Boney had given birth to a child, she would have understood that. But she didn't, and now she's dead. Everybody knows it was Ella, even the guards, who've been questioning her all morning. Whether they can prove it, however, is a different story. An alarm bell sounds, signifying the end of the lockdown. Gio swings her legs over the edge of the bed, a sudden sense of urgency flooding over her. It doesn't take long to organize her things. She doesn't have much to take with her other than a small notebook filled with numbers, a thin stack of birthday and Christmas cards, and a packet of unopened letters written on blue stationery and tied with string. The cards are from her father, and she stuffs them into a cheap duffel bag they've given her. Her dad isn't much of a writer, signing almost all of them with a simple, chin up, kiddo, love dad, but it doesn't feel right to throw them away. The letters give her pause. They're not from her father, and she's only read the first one. For the hundredth time, she debates throwing them into the trash, but even now, she can't bring herself to do it. She stuffs them into the bag with the cards and the notebook. She's already given her cell phone to Ella, the third one she's owned since she's been here. Ella will resell it, probably for three times what it retails for on the outside. And she'll have no shortage of potential buyers. Everything else, Gio will leave with Kat. This includes her TV, books, cosmetics, and two blankets she'll no longer be needing. There's still no word on whether her friend's application for compassionate parole has been approved, which is frustrating and makes Gio think she'll have to try to attack it a different way once she's on the outside. She was only five when her mother died of cancer, and there was nothing she could do for her then. Not this time. Not again. Thought once the bell sounded, you'd speedy Gonzales right out of here, a dry voice says, and she turns. It's Kat, smiling at her from the doorway. Gio frowns, even though the other woman looks a lot better today. The color has returned to her face, and her eyes are brighter, though it's clear from the way she's leaning against the doorframe that the older woman is exhausted. What are you still doing here? Gio asks, cross. You're supposed to be at your appointment. You think you were gonna leave without saying goodbye? We said our goodbyes last night. Kat, these appointments are important. 
So maybe I want to say goodbye again. Cat moves past Geo and sits down on the bed. She pats the spot beside her. It's just a follow-up. It can wait till tomorrow. Geo stifles a sigh and takes a seat on the mattress beside her friend. Cat takes her hand, squeezing her palm. In case my parole doesn't go through, I want to make sure you know how much I appreciate everything you've done for me, Cat says. Your parole will go through. Geo knows where this conversation is going, and she doesn't want to have it. She's not ready. She will never be ready. Cat sighs. She technically has three years left to go on her sentence, and Geo understands that optimism can be a dangerous thing in here. Optimism can make the minutes feel like days, and three years feel like thirty. But her friend is getting out, come hell or high water. Cat Bonaducci will not die in this shithole if it's the last thing Geo does. You need to stay positive, she says, but Cat cuts her off. Shush. Don't interrupt an old woman when she's speaking, that's rude. Geo can't help but laugh. Okay, continue. I've been in here a long time. Nine years. The first four were shitty. There were days when I didn't know how I was going to get through it. And then you came along. Cat's eyes grow moist. And it got better. You're the best thing that ever happened to me. Geo bites her lip. She will not cry. She stares at a spot on the wall until she gets herself under control, and then pats Cat on the leg. You know I feel the same way. That won't change no matter where you are. Cat reaches into her pocket. I got a box of stuff from Lenny yesterday. He moved most of my things into storage, but he sent me a box of my old photos, figuring I'd want to see them before I... She doesn't finish the sentence. Anyway, I thought you'd get a kick out of seeing this one. Geo looks down at the photo her friend is holding. Four by six inches, it's a faded color photo of a young woman wearing a tight black satin corset, sheer black pantyhose, and bunny ears. Wavy auburn hair spills over small porcelain shoulders, and large brown eyes are accented with thick, precisely applied wing-tipped eyeliner. The corset has cinched her waist to nothing, and her breasts are soft and full. Around her neck is a thin leather strap, and attached to it is an open box of cigars. I used to be a cigar girl at the Playboy Club, Kat says with a smile. I was 19. This is you? Stunned, Geo turns over the photograph. On the back, in fading blue ink, someone has scrawled, Catherine Cat Bonaducci, Chicago, 1973. She turns it over again, admiring the image. Holy shit, look at you. Always a cat, never a Kathy. Her friend taps the photo. I want you to have this. This is how I want you to remember me. The sudden lump in Geo's throat is painful. There's no denying that Cat no longer resembles the young woman in the photo, not by a long shot. Her breasts aren't perky, her skin is loose, her lips chapped, her hair devoid of any shine. But her eyes are unchanged, still large, still warm, a perfect shade of coffee brown. Catherine Bonaducci is still beautiful if you take the time to look. Well, it isn't how I want to remember you, Geo says. I didn't know you then, but I'll keep the photo for you. I'll put it in my room in a frame, and when you get out, you can have it back. In case we don't see each other, stop it. I want you to know how special you are. You might never get a job working for a big company again. I know that's hard, but you have brains and you have money. I know you'll figure it out. Cat kisses her on the cheek. I love you, Georgina like you're my own blood. Gio is desperate to find something positive to say, something uplifting, but they know each other too well. Cat can't tolerate bullshit, and Gio can't dish it anyway. Cat is sick. She's going to die, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in three months, but soon. 
The question is, will she die inside Hellwood or in some hospital surrounded by strangers? Or will she die with Geo by her side holding her hand? Dying from cancer isn't pretty. Cancer takes its time and it kills from the inside out. If Geo had to choose, she'd rather go the way Boney did, short, fast, furious. Gio's father kept her away from her mother in her last days, terrified that his young daughter would be haunted by the memories of her mother wasting away. But what haunts Gio now is the memory of waking up early one morning, only to be told that her mother had passed away in the night. She never got a chance to say one last goodbye, to give one last kiss while her mother's cheeks were still warm. She's never quite forgiven her dad for that. There's someone at the doorway, and both women look up. It's Chris Bukowski. Gio's not overly surprised to see the CO today, though he's not technically assigned to her ward. She should have known he'd want to say goodbye and escort her out. She just hopes he doesn't suggest a quick trip to the library first. Ready? He asks. Gio stands, taking one last look around. She won't miss this place with its gray walls, gray floors, and no windows. There's literally nothing here she wants to remember, except for the small, thin woman still sitting on the bed. She helps Kat up, taking both of her friend's hands in her own. I'll see you soon, okay? Go to all of your appointments and try to eat and drink as much as you can. Keep up your strength because there's so much I want us to do together when you get out. Georgina, I'll be waiting for you. Embracing her friend, so tiny and frail and nothing like the picture that's now in her duffel bag, Gio desperately wants to say, I love you. But Bukowski's watching, and the words won't come. She takes her bag and leaves her cell for the last time, following Bukowski down the hallway and out of the ward. On the way to processing, he's stopped by another CO, and while the two are discussing some incident or other, she hears her name whispered softly. Ella Frank is standing just around the corner of the corridor, and she beckons Gio over. Glancing at Bukowski, still deep in conversation with the other guard, Gio walks over. She's surprised to see Ella, who she assumed was still being questioned in Boney's murder. I wanted to say goodbye, Ella says, slipping something into Gio's hand. It's a piece of paper with an address written on it. I made a call. He's expecting you. Go today, okay? Before the kids get out of school. I will. Thank you. For everything. Back at you, Ella says softly. Geo turns to check on Bukowski, who's finishing up his conversation. When she turns back, Ella is gone. The exit process takes 30 minutes. Papers have to be signed, old belongings have to be found and returned, information has to be entered into the system. Bukowski hangs around, although there are surely more important things he could be doing. After all, an inmate was murdered earlier that day. For Gio's five years of work, most of it in the hair salon earning less than $4 a day, minus what she spent in commissary every month for extras, she will pocket a grand total of $223.48. The processing clerk informs her of this amount with some relish, as if Gio should be proud somehow. Is that good? She asks. Most inmates leave with only the hundred you're supposed to get on discharge day. The clerk, a balding middle-aged man, peers up at her from his desk through Coke bottle glasses. The fact that you're getting more means you must have saved. Geo never saved. She never had to. Her financial planner had been instructed to transfer money from her personal account to her prison account every month, so money for extras like better shampoo and ramen noodles was never an issue. Can I transfer the funds to another inmate? Nobody's ever asked that before. The clerk frowns. Do you have her DOC number? Geo gives him Kat's number. He taps his keyboard for a minute. Done. You need a bus schedule? She shakes her head. I have a ride. You're officially free. The clerk pushes some paperwork toward her, along with a plastic bin containing the clothing she was wearing the day she entered Hazelwood. Sign here and here, then you can get changed in the bathroom down the hall. Leave your scrubs in the bin, 
or you can take them with you, like a souvenir. He laughs at his little joke, revealing uneven, coffee-stained teeth. Fuck no. In the bathroom, Gio peels off her prison sweats and puts on her old clothes. She's dismayed to discover that the Dior dress she wore at Calvin's trial is now tight on her, pulling at the hips and stomach, confirming that she's gained weight from all the rehydrated, processed food she's been eating for the past five years. Nevertheless, as she checks out her reflection, she has to admit that it's nice to see herself looking like a person again and not an inmate. The high heels feel strange on her feet. After five years in running shoes, they feel stiff and slippery. It's weird to think that she used to wear these all the time and actually thought they were comfortable. She exits the bathroom to find Bukowski waiting for her. His jaw drops when he sees her. Wow, he says, his face flushing. Holy shit, you look, wow. I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you. They walk down the hallway together toward double doors marked with an exit sign. Bukowski reaches for the buzzer on the wall, then stops and turns to her. You got my number, right? He says in a low voice. He glances up at the camera above her head. Normally, Gio hated all the cameras in Hazelwood, but she's grateful for them now. It means the guard won't try to kiss her or even touch her. I do. It's a lie. Gio doesn't have it. Bukowski scrawled it on a napkin the other day, and she slipped it into her pocket. Far as she knew, it was still there, in the pants that were now crumpled in a plastic bin in the bathroom down the hall. I'll call you once I get settled. The doors beckon. Beyond them is her father and her freedom. I'll miss you. Bukowski's eyes are wet. Open the fucking door, you asshole. She pulls her duffel bag over her shoulder. Me too, Chris. The CO hits the red button, and the double doors buzz open. Drops of rain and crisp morning air hit Gio's face. Her father is standing beside his old Lexus, same one he had when Gio was arrested five years ago. He waves to her. She waves back, and without giving Bukowski another glance, she pulls off her high heels and runs forward to meet him in her bare feet. Good to see you, Dad. Her voice breaks as Walter Shaw's arms engulf her. They were allowed brief hugs in prison on visitors' days, but Gio never allowed her father to visit her more than once a month. It was too hard. You too, sweetheart. Let's blow this pop stand. She laughs a little too hard at the silly phrase. Classic Walt. In the past, she would have rolled her eyes, but not today. She climbs into the car, holding her breath for another minute as they drive past the final guard check and then past the gate. Only when they're on the open road does she allow herself to exhale. Hungry? Her father asks. There's a diner I passed on the way here about 30 minutes out. You can get a burger and fries. Gio shakes her head. Actually, Dad, what I really want is a green tea latte from Starbucks. And I need to stop and see someone on the way home. Any chance we can make both of those happen? Sure. Who are we seeing? He's the brother of a friend from Hazelwood, she says carefully, not wanting to lie to him, but unable to tell him the whole truth. He's expecting me. You don't need to get out of the car. I'll only be a few minutes. She tells him the address. It's in South Seattle. Walt raises an eyebrow. Georgina, you're not involved in anything shady, are you? She rolls down the window a few inches. There's nothing much to see on this particular stretch of highway except miles of road, endless gray skies, and drops of rain on the windshield. But the air smells like freedom, and she breathes it in. She thinks about the notebook in her duffel bag, the small one she carried around in her pocket whenever it wasn't stashed away in an overhead air vent at the hair salon. It contains account numbers, logins, passwords, and the name of the financial planner Geo used to launder Ella Frank's money while at Hazelwood. In a couple of hours, it will all be turned over to Ella's brother, Samuel, the woman's only surviving adult relative and the caregiver to her children. Samuel will receive the keys to the kingdom and in return, he's going to give her a gun. 
to protect herself and her father from the monster that's still out there. No, Dad, she says. Not anymore. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of Jar of Hearts wherever books or audiobooks are sold.